0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, Judah's sons are wicked, he puts his daughter-in-law in a bad situation, she takes matters into her own hands, and Judah takes responsibility for his actions. We'll talk about putting things off, making excuses, being a hypocrite, being a leader, and how God can redeem. Genesis 38. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes— And once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. This is lesson two of the Sons of Israel study. And last week we talked about Joseph being Jacob's favorite and how his brothers hated him so much that they sold him into slavery and told everybody that he was dead. And so if you happen to miss that episode, you might want to go back and listen to it because it's the foundation of the story of Joseph. And so you're going to want to know that as we continue. And we talked about favoritism, jealousy, hatred, discretion, and how we should be reacting to our feelings. Now, this episode, we're going to take a quick detour from Joseph and talk about Judah. So, let's go ahead and start reading in Genesis 38, 1. It came to pass at the time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite who was named Hera. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. And she conceived again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chebez whenever she had these children. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass, when he went into his brother's wife, that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house." Okay, we're going to stop right there and talk about this just a little bit. So sometime after they sold Joseph into slavery, then Judah went to stay with his friend in a nearby town and he met a woman there and she's only identified as Shua's daughter. We don't know her name, but they get married and they have three sons and then they move three miles southwest to another town called Chazib. And after their firstborn son, Er grows up, then Judah finds a wife for him, and her name is Tamar. And we have no idea what it was that made him so wicked, but most likely it wasn't just one bad thing that he had done, but more like an entire life full of sin. Whatever it was, it was bad enough for God to kill him. And so after he dies, then Judah tells his second son to marry Tamar and have children with her so that his oldest son, Er can have an heir. And so this is something that is not obviously common at all around here and something that we don't quite understand, but it was a very common custom back in those days because if a man died and didn't have any children, then he wouldn't have anyone to carry on his name or inherit his property or anything like that. And so I'm going to read you in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. This is when Moses is telling all of the people what they're supposed to do whenever they get into the promised land. And this is one of the rules that he gives to them. And it just shows that this is the way that they did things back then. So let's begin reading in Deuteronomy 25, 5. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. But her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty." Of the husband's brother to her, and it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will secede the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man doesn't want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. And then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him, and if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed." So this was a very serious thing if you chose not to marry your husband's wife and carry on his name because you see the repercussions of that. He's very much dishonored by the whole community if he chooses not to fulfill his duty as a brother-in-law. Again, that would not be a normal duty of a brother-in-law in our day, but because they handed down property to each man's children and things like that, then this would matter a lot more back then. And so Onan didn't have the guts to tell anybody that he didn't want to do this. He wanted to give the appearance that he was doing what he was supposed to do, but not actually do it. So he married her, but he made sure that he did not get her pregnant. You know, a lot of times we feel like no one sees what we're doing. You know, sometimes we can make ourselves look as though we're doing the right thing and not really be doing the right thing. It's really all just for appearance sake. And everyone thinks that we're good people. We're doing all of these good deeds or whatever. But really, it's all just for show. And that's what Onan is doing here. He does not want other people to think badly of him. And so he thinks, well, I'll just do this thing outwardly so that everyone can see it. But I'm not going to actually fulfill my duty to my brother or his wife. And maybe he did fool the people, but he couldn't fool God because God knows all the things that we do all of the time. And maybe God would not have killed him if he would have just been up front and taken his consequence from the people. But he chose not to do that. And so now he's serving the consequence from God. That definitely should be a lesson to us that the Lord always sees what we're doing and we should seek to please him above other people. It's hard sometimes for us to deal with others and how they might react, but providing our lives are really in the Lord's hands, then we should be much more concerned about how he feels about what we're doing than other people or whatever other reason that we don't want to do what we're supposed to do. And so after Onan died, Judah gets scared. He's like, both of these boys, after they married Tamar, died. So I don't know if he thinks she's cursed or if he knows that his sons are just doing wrong things or what all is going on, but he is too afraid to give his last son to Tamar to be married. So he tells her, hey, just go back home to your dad and live as a widow. And whenever Sheila gets a little older, then I'll send for you and you can marry him. But right now he's just a little too young. And what we have to wonder is, did Judah ever intend to give Sheila to her? You know, either he's putting this all off just because he's afraid and he hopes he'll feel better about it later or circumstances will change, or maybe he's just making an excuse to get her away from him and he never intends to give her Sheila in the first place. If he never intends to do this, then his excuse is not an excuse, it's just a lie. It's not a real reason. He's not giving her a real reason. And we have to be careful of that because a lot of times we do this where we don't want to tell people the real reasons, so we tell them a fake reason. And if it's not the real reason, then it's not telling them the truth. And then everybody is operating off of this fake excuse and you can't just deal with the real reason and figure out a solution. It doesn't help anyone whenever we just make excuses that aren't real or we put things off without really having any sort of plan. Because other people don't know what we're thinking and then they're operating off of what we've told them when that really may not even be the true reason in the first place. So we just need to be careful of that. We're going to go ahead and read on about Judah and what ends up happening with that. But I just think we need to be really careful about telling people things that aren't true just to make it easier on ourselves. Okay, so let's go ahead and continue reading in verse 12. It says, Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Dulamite. And it was told to Tamar, saying, Look, your father in law's going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you can come in to me? And he said, I'll send a goat from my flock. And she said, Well, will you give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge should I give you? And she said, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. Okay, we're going to stop right there. So we quickly find out that Sheila is never given to Tamar. Now, does Judah still have intention and he's just continuing to put it off, maybe waiting on her to come to him, or thinking he'll just continue to give excuse after excuse until circumstances change? Is he hoping that she will, you know, find someone else and then he's off the hook and it's all her fault? I mean, we just don't know why he hasn't done this, but Tamar also doesn't know. That's the thing. And that's the reason I say making an excuse that's not real makes other people operate off of that reasoning. And then when that doesn't happen, then they know that you're lying. And so he told her that when Sheila was grown, he would give him to her and he hasn't done that. So she now doesn't know what the reason is because the reason he told doesn't make sense anymore. So in her mind, he never intends to or he's just going to continue to make excuses or whatever. So she decides she has to take matters into her own hands. And this is her opportunity whenever she finds out that he is coming her direction. So, she takes off her widow's clothes and she puts on clothes to make herself look like a prostitute and then she covers her face with a veil so that he doesn't know who she is and he falls for it quickly. It hasn't been long since his wife died and he doesn't seem to have any problem sleeping with a prostitute and he obviously doesn't know that the prostitute is his daughter-in-law and so she asks for payment and normally a goat would be fine. But she wasn't looking for payment, right? The signet ring basically was your ID back then. It held all of your identifying information and it was attached to a cord around your neck. And whenever a person would sign a document or something like that, then they would press this symbol into clay or something and it would harden and then it would bear that person's unique symbol and it would show that this signature belonged to them. And, you know, Judah's staff may also have had some sort of identifying mark. And so she asked for those two things as a pledge from him And she said it was so that she would have something to ensure that he would bring this goat to her. But she really just wanted his ID. She wanted to be able to say, I slept with this man, okay? And so this would hold all of his ID. And he easily agreed to this plan and gave it to her. And then they slept together and she got pregnant. And as soon as he left, she took off all of her prostitute clothes and put back on her widow clothes and went back to her dad's house like nothing had happened. Okay. And so listen to what happens beginning in verse 20. It says, and Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he didn't find her. And he asked the men of that place saying, where is the harlot that was openly by the roadside? And they said, Um there's no harlot in this place. And so he returned to Judah and he said, I can't find her. And also the men of the place said, there's no harlot here. And Judah said, you know, let her take them for herself, lest I be shamed. For I sent this goat and you haven't found her. Whenever he goes back home, he sends the goat with his friend back to the town. And when his friend goes there, he doesn't find any prostitute. And not only does he not find any prostitute, but all of the people of the town say there never has been a prostitute there. And so he thinks a little better of continuing to ask about this prostitute in this town and decides he's going to go back and talk to Judah. And Judah's like, um, yeah, not a good idea. Let's just leave this alone. I did my part. She's not there. We're not going to keep asking about the lady by the roadside. Might kind of give myself away just a little bit. So we're just going to keep this to ourselves. Now, I don't know if their ID was like a key and they could just go have another one made or he didn't need it or what, because it seems like that's a pretty important thing to leave behind with some strange woman, but apparently his reputation was that important. And so he wasn't willing to continue to impress this issue. Okay, so let's see what happens after Tamar goes back to her father's house and everybody finds out that she's pregnant. Beginning in verse 24, it says, And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she's with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. And when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law and said, By the man to whom these things belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine who these things are, the signet and cord and staff. And so Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I didn't give her to Sheila, my son. And then he was never with her again. So she's got him, right? She's totally got him. And So once she starts to show, then word gets back to Judah. And I'm sure he's very embarrassed. And he just wants to get rid of this whole thing because not only has she prostituted herself, but she's now pregnant as a result of that. And so his immediate response was that she should be burned. Why? For her sexual immorality, um, the same sexual immorality that he himself engaged in only three months before. I mean, he doesn't know that he's the person that was with her, but he knows that he did this thing, this same thing that she did like they both did the same thing. The only difference is that, you know, maybe she made a job out of it in his mind. And he's just this innocent bystander that, you know, got wooed by this woman. I mean, maybe he could say that, but the rules are clear from God on men and women sleeping with people that are not their spouses. And so he also was doing something that was sexually immoral. And yet, what he didn't think about that, or he didn't care because he just wanted to get rid of his shame. And, you know, nobody else knew about his thing, but everybody knows about tomorrow. That's the bad thing about the women, right? We can't ever hide it. If we get pregnant, it's pretty clear what happened. (laughs) The men can say, uh, wasn't me or whatever, but we can't really do that. Now, obviously today we have DNA tests and things like that if we just want to prove it. But Back then, they didn't have anything like that. And so it was very obvious what she had done and no one knew about what Judah had done. But it just makes me wonder just a little bit if we do these types of things ourselves, you know, when we see it in someone else, it's like, that is horrible. I cannot believe they are doing that. They are such bad people, you know, and then we don't even realize that we do the same type of thing, right? This happens often, I think. Sometimes we don't do the same exact thing, but it's similar. And then oftentimes we really do this thing and we just don't see it in ourselves. Have you ever noticed this about other people? It's so easy to notice about other people, right? You see other people and you see them like having a fit about something that someone's doing and you're like, oh my gosh, that's you, right? This is definitely evident in parents and children, right? A lot of times you'll see this where the parent is like, oh, my kid's. And then everybody else is like, the reason you have such a problem with that is because that is you, right? That's you. You do that same thing and it drives you crazy when you see it, but you apparently don't notice that they got that from you or you do that all the time, right? And so it's easier to see sin in other people and it's easier to see the repercussions of that or how bad it really is when we see it in other people. And then for ourselves, even if we see that we do it, we make more excuses, right? We know why we do those things. And we're like, yeah, but that's not really the same thing because whatever. Listen to what it says in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Jesus knew we were like this, right? He knew this was our tendency, obviously. He knows everything, but he makes sure to write it down so that we know that he knows, right? And it's like, here's what you guys need to do. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, I do want you to notice, because this verse is quoted so very often about don't judge people and all of that, it does not say that we are not supposed to, you know, notice things about others and take note of that and not do them or, even that we're not supposed to say something if we have the right intentions and if we ourselves are seeing the situation clearly. Because it does say if we remove the plank from our eyes, then we'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from our brother's eye. And so there are many places in the Bible that do talk about, you know, helping our brothers and sisters in love whenever they're sinning and things like that. But I think this is specifically talking about this type of situation with Judah because it says, with the judgment that you judge, that is how you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it'll be measured back to you. And so have you ever noticed how whenever you think something about someone else and you look at them with contempt or thinking that they're doing something so wrong, then other people start judging you in that same way. So people start really looking at you when you start telling them that they do something. They're like, hmm, really? That's funny coming from you because you last week, blah, blah, blah. And so we have to be really careful that we're not doing anything similar to that. If we have any ability to speak on the matter or if we do do things like that, then we have to come to our brothers and sisters in a spirit of, hey, this is something that I struggle with also, and maybe we can help each other out because this is something I've noticed in myself, or this is something that I used to do, this is how I've been kind of dealing with it, things like that. Because if we come at people as just like, uh, what are you thinking? Why are you acting like that? Then they're going to be like, mm, you do that too. You're really not one to talk, right? And then notice how it also says with the measure that you use, it'll be measured back to you. So however harsh we are with others, then that's what we should expect in return. And so if we are going to address something in someone else, we better be kind, right? We better be understanding and merciful and gracious because that's what we want done back to us. And if we allow ourselves to be self-righteous and think that we are untouchable and everything we do is perfect and we're just going to set this person straight and we do it in a very rude way, then that's the kind of thing that we should expect back from other people. Even if it's not that person, other people will see it. And so we have to be very careful of that. And this is just about going to come back and bite Judah, right? He's now seeing I'm the one that did that. Uh, It wasn't just you. Not only did I sleep with a person, but I slept with you. I'm the reason that you are in this situation. And then notice, it's not just that he's the reason that she's pregnant. He's the reason that she sat by the roadside in the first place, right? And he admits that. That's what's good about Judah. If you notice, he says, she is more righteous than me. Look in verse 26. Judah acknowledged and said, she has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. So not only did he realize hey, I put her in this position. I don't really think I can burn her for being pregnant when I'm the one that got her pregnant. But he also says, she's better than me because she's in this situation. She did this thing because I did something I should not have done. I kept my son from her out of fear and made her have to just be a widow forever or put her in a situation to make a decision like this, right? Because he was just expecting Tamar to just go back to her dad's house and leave this thing alone. That's what she's thinking. And since he's put her off so long, he understands that she has no reason to think that she'll ever get him as her husband. And so she has to take matters into her own hands, or at least that's how she feels. Now, he's not necessarily responsible for her sin, but he is responsible for putting her in a bad situation. He's responsible because Tamar has done the right thing, right? She could have done the wrong thing by just Uh, He didn't give me Sheila. I'm just going to go marry another man. But she didn't. She was trying to honor her end of the deal and stay pure and wait for Sheila. And then he never gives him. And so she's like, you know what? I'll make sure that my child is of this family. I'll make sure of that. And so Judah realizes, man, I put her in a bad position. And so that just makes me think about leadership in general. When we are in a position of leadership in a family, in a church, as an employer, are we responsible for the actions of those that are under our authority? Do we put them in situations to succeed or do we put them in difficult situations where they don't know how to do the right thing? I mean, that happens, doesn't it? Where we just put them in impossible situations and then we're mad at them whenever they don't react well, whenever they do the wrong thing. And they're like, hey, I don't know what you expected me to do. I don't know what the right thing is because you haven't done the right thing. Oftentimes when we do the wrong thing as a leader, it just causes this ripple effect. And those under us also do not do the right thing. And so we have to put people in situations to be successful when we're in a position of authority. That's why the Bible tells us that we're held to a higher standard whenever we are in positions of leadership. Listen to these couple of verses. The first one is found in Matthew 18, 6 and 7. It says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. And so we do not want to be responsible for causing a child to sin because we put them in a bad position. That's what that verse is saying. Now, listen to Romans fourteen twenty one. That first one was adults in relation to children. This one says, It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So what that's saying is that even if it might be right for us to do, even if we can drink wine and not get drunk, even if we think that this thing is right, but the other person is trying not to do it because it's wrong for them, whatever it may be. If we do something that causes someone else to stumble because we know that that's their weakness and we do that in front of them and cause them to stumble, then we're held responsible for that. We're supposed to help others be their best and do their best, and obey the Lord, we're supposed to strengthen them, and not put them in positions where we know they are weak, and they're not going to be successful in fighting that. So that's another time when our actions affect others, and God can hold us responsible. Now, last one on this, look at James 3, 1. It says, my brothers, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So it's that right there is saying that teachers are held to a higher standard. Because if you're teaching things to others, then you're responsible for what they're learning. And that would mean parents. It would mean church leaders, right? Any adult that's in authority. What about even again, employers? Employers that are teaching their employees. Okay, So all of these situations, obviously this is talking about spiritually, but we don't want to put other people in bad situations because we don't do our job. And that's where Judah is. Judah is in the position of authority here and he is head of this family and he's put Tamar in a horrible situation because he didn't do his job. He was not the leader that he was supposed to be. And now she's having to try to figure out how to react to his bad leadership and to his sin. And maybe it wasn't the greatest idea on her part, but she doesn't know what else to do. Now, the good thing that Judah did is when it was brought to his attention, he quickly took responsibility for it, right? He quickly was like, oh, wow, this is all my fault, i put her in a bad situation and then i wanted to burn her for something that i was also responsible for right this is bad all the way around it's all been the cause of something that i did listen to proverbs 28:13 it says he who covers his sins will not prosper but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy And so it almost seemed like Judah was seeking to cover his sin whenever he was thinking to himself that no one knew that he slept with a prostitute, right? Let's just keep our mouths shut. Let's not talk about this anymore. And then whenever Tamar obviously had slept with someone out of wedlock, then he's like, hey, burn her. But thankfully, as soon as he was confronted with his sin, he confessed it immediately. And so This verse is saying that if we cover our sins, then we're not going to prosper. It's not going to work well for us. That's not going to benefit us. But if we confess them and forsake them, so not only do we have, you know, confess those sins, but forsake those sins, stop doing that, then God will have mercy on that person. And, you know, sometimes we confess and forsake the same sin several times, but that's called practice, right? That's practicing. Whenever we do the wrong thing and then we say, oh, I feel so bad about that. I'm so sorry, Lord, please forgive me. I'm going to not do that again. And then we do do it again. Then we just have to confess and forsake again, confess and forsake again until we've practiced confessing and forsaking that specific sin enough that it's completely forsaken. That's what we have to do. And God will give us mercy each and every time. We just can't hide those sins. And expect to prosper. That's what this verse is saying. And so Judah did this, right? Judah did not only confess his sin and say, She's more righteous than me because it's all my fault that I didn't give Sheila to her. But he also forsook his sin of sleeping with her and never slept with her again. That's what it says at the end of verse 26. And he never knew her again. He was never with her again. So confessing and forsaking. Okay, let's read the very end of Genesis 38. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this is the one that came out first. And then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through this breach be upon you? Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. And afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zira. So since she had waited so long to have children, she was probably very excited to have the blessing of twins. And since the oldest has special privileges back then, then it was very important to Pay attention to which one was born first, and that's why they tied the scarlet thread around Zira's wrist because they were trying to quickly catch this is the child that's born first. But what happened? This child withdrew his hand, and then Perez kind of snuck his way out. That's what they're saying. How did you breach this? How did you break through? This is the same thing that happened with Jacob and Esau, right? Except for Jacob tried to be born first, but Perez actually was. Jacob was born holding on to Esau's heel as if he was trying to breach this position. That's why he's called the supplanter, the one that's trying to supplant his brother's position. But Perez actually succeeds in this and breaches breaking through, making himself the firstborn. That's what this is all giving the picture of. And so him and Jacob would be compared to one another. And this is Jacob's grandson. Remember, because it's Jacob and then Jacob has a son named Judah. And then Judah is the one having this child. So this is Jacob's grandson, and he's being compared to his grandfather in this way. And both of them are named because of the way that they were born. Jacob is called the supplanter, and Perez is called the one that reaches. Now, interestingly enough, King David and Jesus are descendants of Perez. And so not only is Judah the one that's made all these mistakes in the bloodline of Jesus, but also Tamar. And there's very few women that get listed in the genealogy of Jesus, and she is one of them. And so I want to read you a couple of places that show this, and we'll end with that. The first place is Ruth, chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. It says, This is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Noshen. Noshen begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. So this is King David. Okay. And so it's showing all the way from Judah to Perez and all of these people to King David. Now, let's look in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus. We're going to go ahead and read all of it. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, he's listing a couple of people. Jesus is in the line of David. Jesus is also in the line of Abraham. So, we start with Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. They list Tamar's name, okay? And so we know all these people so far. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, now Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amenadab. Aminadab begot Noshan. Noshan begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. We get to see Ruth's name also. She's a second woman. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. Okay, so same thing we just heard in the book of Ruth, except it went all the way back to Abraham, and it listed these two women's names, Tamar and Ruth. Now let's go ahead and read till we get to Jesus, just so we can see that he's not only in the line of David, but in the line of Jesus. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, Ahaz begot Hezekiah, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, Ammon begot Josiah, Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away into Babylon. Okay. Then after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shiltiel. Shiltiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiad. Abiad begot Eliakim. Eliakim begot Azar, Azor begot Zodok. Zodok begot Akim, Akim begot Eliad. Eliad begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Mathan. Mathen begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So obviously I have no idea how to pronounce half of those names, and so thanks for bearing with me. But I just wanted you to see that Judah is in the line of Jesus. So even though Tamar was robbed for all these years of a son through Judah's first two sons, she did end up having a son by not Judah's sons, but Judah himself, right? So instead of it being Judah's grandsons, these were Judah's sons. So let's quickly just look in Genesis 46 where it tells us this, the sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. We knew about those. But then also Perez and Zerah. Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. So First three sons, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Er and Onan died, and then he also had Perez and Zerah by Er and Onan's wife Tamar. First Chronicles 2, 3, and 4 also talks about this. It says, The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, and Shelah. These three were born to him by the daughter of Shua the Canaanites. Ur, the firstborn of Judah, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so God killed him. And Tamar, his daughter-in-law, bore him, Perez and Zerah. All of the sons of Judah were five. So that gives a little bit more detail right there, right? Now, I do want you to know that Sheila apparently does end up getting married and having children of his own that are not by Tamar. He does not marry Tamar. And they talk about that in First Chronicles 4, beginning in verse 21. It says, The sons of Sheila, the son of Judah, were Ur, er, the father of Lecha. Lada, the father of Marishah, and the families of the house of the linen workers of the house of Ashbia. Also Jochum, the men of Chozeba and Joish, Seraph, who ruled in Moab, and Jashubi Lehem. Now the records are ancient. These were the potters and those who dwelled in Nataim and Gadira. There they dwelt with the king for his work. Huh, those were harder names. So anyway, Sheila did get married. We don't know to whom, but he did have children. And it says that his firstborn son, he did name Ur. So he did carry on his brother's name with his first son. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is just how God redeemed this situation and had grace on Judah because of the things that he did. And he can do that same thing for us. You know, Judah did make a mistake, but here's the thing. He's not identified by that mistake. Judah does other things that are good. And so we can't really say, oh, well, he did this wrong thing. Why does he get to have the children that are in the bloodline of Jesus? Because if that were the case, then God could say that about every single one of us. Oh, they did this wrong thing. Why do they deserve this or that? And the thing is, is that remember, as soon as he was confronted with his sin, he confessed it and forsook it. And so God knew his heart and had mercy on him and redeemed that situation. And he redeemed that situation for Tamar, too, because she had waited so long. And so listen to what it says in Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so man, that's got a lot in it. So let's just start from the beginning. This is saying all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And so it's the same thing I was saying a while ago. We can't condemn Judah saying, oh, he sinned. He shouldn't get this because every one of us have done something against God and don't deserve that. But we are justified. We are set right. The situation's made right by God's grace, God's favor on us through redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is able to redeem any situation because of who he is. Because God set him forth to be a propitiation with his blood through faith for us. So Jesus switched places with us and he died for our sins and then gave us his righteousness so that God can see us as righteous and not as sinners. And he can give us the blessings that he desires to give to us because God loves us that much and passes over our sins in his favor and in his grace. And that's what he did for Judah there. Now, also look at Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So again, because God has an abundance of grace for us, then he gives us redemption through Jesus and we have forgiveness of our sins. That's why Judah still gets to have this, because God has redeemed him. And he can do the same thing for us. So if you are in a situation where you have been hypocritical, you have looked at other people and said, hey, y'all are horrible and I don't ever act like that. And then you later realize you did. Or if you've been a bad leader and put other people in bad situations, Anything like this that you saw yourself in Judah, God can redeem that situation. And so don't lose hope. Hold on to those verses that we just read and remember that God can redeem any situation that we've put ourselves in through His grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay. So that's all we have for today. Next week, we're going to go back to Joseph and talk about what happens to him after he got sold into slavery. And so make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss that episode because the whole rest of this study is going to be pretty much about Joseph. And so you don't want to miss these because you might not know quite what's going on. Also, make sure that you leave me comments wherever you're listening. I'd really like to know what y'all are thinking about some of these lessons. You can also email me at Courtney at LiveThroughJesus.com. You can also leave me a five-star review if you're enjoying all of this and spread the word to your friends. We'll continue talking about Joseph next week. Thanks and have a good day.